Imagine a game of chess in which rather than the only outcomes being win, lose, or draw, you could win big or you could win small or you could win somewhere in the middle. And imagine that underneath the board was a huge amount of dynamite and both players had a switch and at any given time they could press the button and blow up the board and kill both of them. That's kind of like a nuclear crisis. Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. To be honest, just a month ago, I don't think I could have imagined recording this podcast, but today we're going to talk about quantifying the risks of nuclear conflict. As the war in Ukraine enters its third week, nuclear threats are the subtext for so much of what has unfolded, from Putin's decision to invade in the first place to how the rest of the world has responded. NATO countries have drawn a line in the sand at sending troops into Ukraine, and despite the Ukrainian government's pleas, won't enforce a no-fly zone over the country. The reason, they say, is that to do so risks escalating the situation to a direct conflict between nuclear powers and the possibility of nuclear war. But in polls, significant numbers of Americans still say they support a no-fly zone. A majority, in fact. So how do leaders and experts, and how should we, think about the risks of nuclear conflict? What does it mean to make decisions in the context of weapons whose whole purpose is to either never be used or cause apocalyptic loss of life? How does deterrence work, and when does it fail? Here with me to discuss is James Acton. He is the co-director of the Nuclear Policy Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and a trained physicist. Welcome to the show. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. It's nice to have you. I have to think that you're the type of person who tends to get a lot of phone calls when things in the world are not going so well. More than one of my friends and relatives have joked that they hope never to see me on TV because it generally means something bad is going on. Okay, well, we're glad to have you here nonetheless. Let's see if we can talk through some of the risks and, and, and make sense of it so that we can know whether we should actually be scared or not. So first of all, in the war in Ukraine so far, there are certain escalations that NATO countries have been unwilling to take, in part because of the risk of eventual nuclear warfare, essentially. In a situation like this, how do leaders and experts and the people advising leaders calculate or think about the risk of nuclear war? You know, the first thing to say is I think that the U.S. administration's other countries' lack of willingness to escalate in this situation, including by implementing a no-fly zone, actually isn't just because of the risk of nuclear war. I think the risk of a large-scale conventional conflict between the U.S. and Russia or between NATO and Russia is a significant deterrent in and of itself. It's not just the risk of nuclear war. Mm -hmm. But I do think the risk of nuclear war kind of hangs heavy on a lot of NATO leaders' minds. And to be honest, you know, we don't have, I think, a great grasp of how these leaders tend to think about those risks. It's actually not something leaders talk very much about publicly. You can look back and you can see uh, historical documents, which give you some hint of how they think about it. And a lot of those documents, you can find kind of very contradictory statements from leaders. I think about Eisenhower in particular, who at some times kind of seemed to lean very forward on nuclear weapons and think about using them and believe they were usable. And at other times, talked about the risk of nuclear war as being an apocalyptic thing that the US couldn't go anywhere near. So the historical data on this is, I think, at best contradictory. All I would say in a kind of a very general big picture level 
is some nuclear strategists think a lot about how to fight and win a nuclear war, about you know ways of somewhat reducing the level of damage that the US would suffer in a nuclear exchange, and thinking about how to make threats more credible. Okay, I don't think to the extent we know it that national leaders tend to think about it in this way. I think they've generally, you know, if you look at the evidence holistically with all its contradictions, tend to view nuclear use as being a fairly apocalyptic, terrible thing that they want to avoid almost at any cost. Ultimately, are you saying that leaders are making more intuitive and emotional decisions and not thinking probabilistically about how their actions might move us closer or further away from the risk of nuclear war? Yeah, and there's some interesting direct evidence, I think, that leaders don't think about this probabilistically. I mean, if you look at, for example, evidence during the Cuban Missile Crisis, there are a group of people you might loosely call the hawks, who basically, you know, when you look at what they said in the historical record, discount the probability of nuclear use entirely. They're willing to act quite aggressively. They're willing to try to pressure the Soviet Union into backing down, into withdrawing the missiles. And when the subject of nuclear escalation comes up, they basically say it's not going to happen. The Soviets are going to back down. And then there's another group of people within the Cuban Missile Crisis, you might term the doves, who view nuclear escalation as being a very real possibility, who are willing to kind of take very big steps to avoid it. But in neither case, I think, is anybody thinking down probabilistically, you know, analyzing the way in which this move by the US to implement a naval blockade slightly increases the risk of nuclear war or what we should do to slightly reduce it. I, looking through the historical record, I don't see much evidence here of probabilistic thinking. I think either nuclear war is something that people have tend to think is unthinkable in any given circumstances, or it's something that looms very large and tends to be the single biggest factor in the decision calculus. How do you think about it as an outside expert? Is there a way to apply probabilistic thinking to, for example, the conflict in Ukraine and what could make nuclear conflict more or less likely? I'm generally skeptical of trying to estimate precise probabilities of nuclear war. But I do think that the way you would do that provides a very good mental framework for thinking through the problem. So if we look at the Ukraine crisis specifically, prior to the war, Putin made a nuclear threat that was clearly intended to deter NATO intervention into the war. During the war on that first Sunday, there was a second nuclear threat that was a lot vaguer of what he was trying to do. But, you know, he's clearly putting nuclear weapons on the table. And I think one can ask usefully the question, what conditions would have to pertain for Putin to believe that the risks of using nuclear weapons were smaller than the risks of not using them. Like, I don't think Putin's mad. I think he's evil. I think he weighs up costs and benefits in a rational way, even if he not necessarily has good information to what those costs and benefits necessarily are. I think he, he fully recognizes that using nuclear weapons would be very risky. The question is, under what circumstances might he reasonably judge that the risks of using them were lower than the risks of not using them? And then you can think about how likely all of those different circumstances are to pertain. So I'm not about to make a prediction. What I'm about to kind of sketch out is what the circumstances would have to be for Putin to seriously consider using nuclear weapons. You know, firstly, I think Russia would have to be really losing this war. Like, I think their military operations have not performed nearly as well as they were anticipating or certainly than they would have liked. But, you know, Ukraine could still lose this war. If Putin were faced with a horrific loss of this war, 
or maybe a very prolonged and extremely costly bloodbath that severely weakened Russia's military forces by the end of it. If he was faced with essentially giving up on the war effort in a situation in which his economy laid in ruins because of international sanctions, especially if he were worried about his own hold on power. In your most recent podcast, you discussed a lot of the polling associated with that. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, some initial hopes that some of us had this war would rapidly prove unpopular in Russia have turned out to be unfounded. But I wouldn't exclude the possibility that this war could become extremely unpopular in Russia and may threaten Putin's hold on power, or at least make him think his hold on power is threatened. He's talked publicly before about his, quote, disgust, unquote, about Gaddafi's murder. I think he clearly worries about the same thing happening to him, whether or not those worries are justified. So if all of those conditions came to pass, and Putin was basically confronted with going back to a wrecked country, having lost a war and having his own hold on power threatened, in those circumstances, I think he could view nuclear weapons as being a potential way out of this conflict for some kind of face-saving solution or even some kind of victory. We can argue over how likely all of those different circumstances would come to pass, but those are the kind of things that I would think make Russian nuclear use at least very possible, if not likely. So as you see it, the biggest risk involved in the current conflict of nuclear weapons being used is basically things going absolutely horribly for Russia? Or are there other risks that are higher up than that? So in general terms, we can think about nuclear escalation in two quite different pathways. There is deliberate nuclear escalation, which is where the party that's losing a conflict reaches the decision that nuclear use serves its interests and that it could hope to, rather than face some catastrophic conventional defeat, it believes that nuclear weapons offer it a way for a face-saving compromise or maybe outright victory. But there is a clear calculation that nuclear use would serve its interests. That is my big concern in this situation in which NATO is not involved. There is a second conceptually very different pathway to nuclear use, which is that of unintentional escalation. And in this pathway, basically, both the parties would believe that their interests would be best served by the conflict remaining non-nuclear. But because of some misperception, or conceivably an accident, or unauthorized operations, one of the parties wrongly believes that the other party is about to cross the nuclear threshold, or conceivably wrongly believes that the other party has launched a nuclear attack, or wrongly believes that the other party is about to do something incredibly provocative, like try to go after its leadership. Those kinds of misperceptions could also lead to nuclear escalation. They've led to escalation in conventional conflicts before. I actually think that kind of pathway, which would really worry me in a direct US-Russian conflict, is actually very unlikely in a conflict in which NATO is not a direct party. We could certainly imagine accidents in the Russia-Ukrainian war. I mean, you know, imagine, for example, that Russian forces are, uh, you know, Russian aircraft are flying very close to the Polish border. There is uh, NATO planes policing Poland's border. The two planes could easily engage in conflict in that situation. You could easily imagine NATO planes shooting down Russian planes or Russian planes shooting down NATO planes. Fortunately, those kinds of isolated incidents historically have not led to further escalation, even in situations in which they could have done because they were very kind of high pressure, volatile, tense situations. I can't exclude the possibility that they would lead to escalation, 
But I think those kind of accidents are much less likely to lead to nuclear escalation than Russia being faced with what it conceives of a catastrophic conventional defeat. As you mentioned, four days into the invasion, Putin ordered his defense minister to put, quote, deterrence forces on high combat alert, essentially referring to nuclear weapons. What was Putin's intention there, just to raise the salience of nuclear weapons in people's minds in order to keep NATO out of the conflict? One quick point, which is Russia's deterrence forces also refer to its certain kinds of long-range, high-precision conventional weapons. There's no question in my mind this was a nuclear threat, but we should just be aware that the concept Mm -hmm. of deterrence forces in Russia is slightly broader. I don't know actually what Putin's intentions here, and I can give you three different interpretations, and I don't know which one is correct, or indeed whether Putin had a very clear threat in mind when he made this threat. Before the war, Putin said very explicitly that he warned NATO against intervention, and then immediately thereafter reminded the world that he has a huge nuclear arsenal. That was about deterring direct NATO military intervention in the war. So one possibility about this threat he made during the war was he was just reiterating his earlier threat against NATO involvement. If you actually listen to what he said on Sunday, at least the translation that the Kremlin has put out, I don't speak Russian, there was, they only put out very brief kind of few sentences from that meeting. But immediately before making his nuclear threat on that Sunday, he mentioned economic sanctions and unfriendly statements by NATO countries. And then immediately thereafter, he made his nuclear threat. So if you take that literally, and I find it very hard to take that literally, but if you take that literally, what he was saying was, lift sanctions and be nice to me, or I'll nuke you, which is like a completely incredible threat to be making. Mm -hmm. The third possibility is the threat wasn't targeted against NATO, it was targeted against Ukraine, and he was trying to scare Ukraine into backing down. I do not know which one of those is correct. I do not know whether he had a clear intention in mind. If we had seen changes to Russia's force posture, and the director of national intelligence, Avril Haines, have said, we haven't. Russia's nuclear forces have remained in essentially their previous configuration. We did see a Russian nuclear exercise, but the US doesn't appear to have interpreted that as an alert. If we had seen a change, that may have given us a hint about what the threat was. I'm curious, there are obviously two buckets that NATO is thinking about in terms of escalations that they're willing to take that they don't think increase the threat of nuclear conflict, or at least a direct conflict between nuclear superpowers, and then other interventions that they're not willing to take. How do you make that decision? Like, why are economic sanctions not all that likely to lead to a direct conflict, but, you know, I mean, a no-fly zone, that's maybe obvious, but that, you know, transferring warplanes from Poland through Germany is something that they're not willing to do. How do you draw the line? Like, what is going too far and what isn't? I don't think anybody has a good answer to that question, honestly. You know, there is no objective way of analyzing that question. The key issue here is how Russia perceives those, how Putin personally perceives those actions. And, you know, there are some analysts who say sanctions that threaten the basic viability of the Russian economy are potentially more likely to lead to escalation than, say, giving Ukraine Polish mix. There's a lot of uncertainty here. One, you know, useful way to imagine 
thinking about a crisis between two nuclear armed states is people often tend to resort to poker as analogy or they tend to resort to chess as analogy. The analogy that I'm about to give you is, is kind of loosely inspired by Tom Schelling, who's probably the greatest nuclear strategist. But imagine a game of chess in which rather than the only outcomes being win, lose, or draw. You could win big or you could win small or you could win somewhere in the middle. Like the amount of material advantage you had when the game ended controlled what your punishment was if you lost. If you were only one pawn behind when you lost, then you suffered nothing more than mild embarrassment. And if you were being thrashed when you lost, you would be evicted from your house and made bankrupt. And imagine that underneath the board was a huge amount of dynamite. And both players had a switch, and at any given time, they could press the button and blow up the board and kill both of them. That's kind of like a nuclear crisis. You want to win, but you don't want to win by so much that your opponent's threat to blow up you both up becomes credible. And you wouldn't necessarily know where your opponent's thresholds were. Again, in some sense, this kind of weird chess game analogy doesn't even reflect the full complexity of a crisis with a nuclear dimension. Because in the Ukraine crisis, you know, we have lots of different dimensions going on simultaneously. There's the economic dimension and sanctions. There's the military dimension on the battlefield. There's implied threats between NATO and Russia. There's diplomacy going on. The chess game, the weird chess game that I summarized, would only be fought in one arena at any given time. But even so, I think this is kind of a, a somewhat helpful analogy to think about here. Because you'd want to win, you'd want to try to kind of get an advantage, but not such a big advantage that you risked the opponent killing you both. And that, that's kind of a very strange, but like an analogy for thinking about this kind of crisis. To take a step back for a moment and make this a little bit less abstract, what are we talking about when we talk about a nuclear conflict. I think for most people, they think with the nuclear bombs that we have today and two superpowers involved, nuclear war means the annihilation of the planet. Is that what we're talking about? Like, do strategists and theorists think of a world in which nuclear weapons get used and the world doesn't end? How should we think about what this threat actually is? Strategists absolutely think about fighting limited nuclear wars that don't destroy the entire planet. But in some sense, the whole purpose of nuclear use is that once you've crossed the nuclear threshold, there is a chance, we don't know how big or how small it is, that it could escalate into all-out nuclear use. And so you're engaging in this game of brinkmanship here. Which, incidentally, you're doing, you know, before nuclear weapons are being used, by making threats, by raising the risk of nuclear use. You're essentially imagining engaging in a game of brinkmanship. Chicken is often an analogy that's used here of two cars driving at one another. And, you know, the loser is the first person to swerve. The idea is that by raising the risk of mutual annihilation, you are scaring the other side into backing down. And I think we don't stress enough that mutual nuclear annihilation, you know, this is a civilization ending possibility. A nuclear war would not necessarily start off that way. You know, one of the speculations that I think is potentially a good one is if Russia were to use nuclear weapons first, it would probably, it may be some kind of demonstration shot, a nuclear burst somewhere, say, over the Northern Black Sea. And that in and of itself might not kill anybody. If it's a fairly isolated area, the radioactive contamination 
wouldn't be apocalyptic in the way we tend to think about it. But inherent in that decision, even just to use a demonstration shot that conceivably might not kill anybody, Russia would be sending out the risk that, you know, we are willing to go all the way. If this thing gets out of hand, we, it will destroy us both. And then that would be intended to be a threat, say, to make the Ukrainians back down, to give Russia a face-saving deal at the negotiating table. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. That's a different story. But even in the most limited clinical use of nuclear weapons imaginable, you would be implicitly making the threat that if we can't control this conflict, it can get out of hand and destroy us both. We've been talking a lot about escalation. I want to talk about de-escalation. But before we get to that, at the risk of talking too much about nuclear war and scaring people, like what do you think the actual risk of this conflict becoming nuclear is? I cannot give you a quantitative answer. All I can tell you is like, I'm not packing up my family to drive to some isolated location right now with food supplies. You know, I do think we are in a situation right now where nuclear use is unlikely. It's remote stuff would have to get a lot worse. But it's something that I think is not inconceivable. And I think it's helpful to think about this through a framework of risk, where risk is the product of probability and consequence. We are dealing with low probability events here, but we are dealing with exceptionally high consequence events. I mean, arguably the highest consequence event you could conceivably imagine is a nuclear war. And when you look at it through the risk framework, I'm worried about this. I think this is something that leaders ought to be worrying about. I think some of them are worrying about it. And, you know, as you hinted, we'll discuss next. I think it's something that we want to be looking for off ramps from this conflict. So how does de-escalation work in both conventional warfare, which is what's going on right now, and with a nuclear component, as you'd said. Almost all conventional wars end through some kind of agreement. One can think about some wars in which one side absolutely decimated the other side and completely annihilated the loser's ability to keep fighting. You know, the US Civil War is an example of that. But actually, that's kind of the unusual case. Most of the time, the losing side or the side that's perceived as losing could have resisted for a lot longer, but both sides decide that an agreement is in their interests. Ukraine in this situation cannot annihilate Russia's armed forces. There is still some chance that Russia will completely annihilate Ukraine's armed forces. But the most likely outcome here is a Ukrainian-Russian agreement at some point, this could be a long way off, um, to end fighting. And we've already seen the two sides beginning to set out positions for ending this war. The US interpreted Russian motives coming into this war as being annihilating Ukraine. I think this war hasn't gone as well for the Russians anywhere near as they hoped. And Putin is now starting to set out, I mean, his spokesman actually, starting to set out conditions for ending the war. Recognition by Ukraine of Crimea as Russia. Recognition of the Donetsk and Luhansk republics as independent states. Ukraine changing its constitution to become a neutral country. There is kind of an implicit demand that Ukraine, in some sense, disarm itself. Not on that list is regime change in Kyiv, which is a significant shift for the Russians. Zelensky has said he can't accept those conditions as they are, but they are a basis for negotiation. So the best case here is Ukraine and Russia at some point negotiate an agreement that gives 
each side the ability to claim they got something from this conflict. You know, in Ukraine's case, that will be continuing to exist as a sovereign state under its democratically elected government. Putin might be able to take away, you know, a Ukrainian commitment not to join NATO. What that bargain looks like will depend on progress on the battlefield. If Ukraine is really successful at holding Russian forces at bay, it will have more leverage in negotiations and will be able to drive a harder bargain. If Putin forces you know achieve success and are on the brink of big breakthroughs ukraine will have to settle for a worse deal so a lot of how this conflict ends would depend on ukrainian russian negotiations this could happen quickly this could take a long time i have no idea of course at this point there are lots of other countries involved as well and private corporations and things like that that in most circumstances, you would imagine that Russia would not really want to end the conflict, but still have all of these sanctions in place. So what role does the rest of the world play in aligning with whatever agreement might be formed between Ukraine and Russia? It is kind of inconceivable to me that Russia would agree to some kind of peace settlement without sanctions relief. And there are a lot of folks in the US, and they've kind of made it this pretty clear, who would be very happy to fight Russia to the last Ukrainian. They don't want sanctions relief for Russia under any circumstance because they want to weaken and undermine Russia. And I think there is a real trade-off here between undermining Russia and supporting Ukraine. And in my view, if we want Ukraine to survive as an independent state, if Zelensky is able to negotiate an agreement with Russia that is good enough for Zelensky, it should be good enough for us. And we, the international community, should be willing to negotiate sanctions relief with Russia. Now, we can't force private corporations to go back into business in in Russia, even if we wanted them to, right? We can't force them to do that. So sanctions relief is actually not even going to restore the status quo ante in terms of the Russian economy. But what makes this a complicated crisis or conflict to end is this is a kind of trilateral negotiation almost. You know, the Cuban Missile Crisis, you go back, you think about being the archetypal nuclear crisis. At the end of the day, there were really only two actors that really mattered, the US and the Soviet Union. I mean, obviously, Cuba was involved, but Khrushchev was basically forced Cuba to accept whatever he wanted. They could negotiate an end to this conflict. In the case of the Russia-Ukrainian war, there is a Russia-Ukrainian negotiation, and there is a us rest of the world Russia negotiation. And there's going to be quiet negotiations between the US and the rest of the world in Ukraine too. And that actually makes this a somewhat more complicated conflict to end. So while nuclear weapons may be the primary thing that hangs over leaders when they're making decisions about what to do in this war, it's not the only nuclear risk in this conflict. So on the first day of the invasion, Russia took control over the Chernobyl power plant, which disconnected from the power grid this week. And Europe's largest power plant, which unlike Chernobyl, is currently under operation, came under fire last week. So how should we think about the risks associated with power plants in a situation like this? Sure. I mean, let me talk a bit first about the risks qualitatively and then how you would think about it quantitatively. Because unlike with nuclear war, there are very established quantitative methodologies for assessing power plant risks. My big concern here is that Ukraine's operating nuclear power plants, which as part of its unprovoked illegal assault on Ukraine, Russia is trying to take over all of Ukraine's critical infrastructure, including its power plants. I think largely so it can threaten to deprive the population of electricity. 
And we saw this firefight around, and I'm going to butcher it, the pronunciation, so apologies to Ukrainian speakers listening. But There's a reason I didn't try to say it myself. <laughs> uh, Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. The fear here is that, my biggest fear, I should say, if you shut a nuclear power plant, if you turn it off, it still needs to be cooled. And that requires electricity, it requires energy. And the preferred means for nuclear power plants to get that electricity is from the grid. If the grid connection fails, they have, for example, emergency diesel generators on site that can produce electricity. You have something called the ultimate heat sink. You know, the heat from a nuclear power plant has to go somewhere, and that's the air or the water, ultimately. And so you have cooling towers, or in the case of Zaporizhia, you have this spray pond that sprays water up into the air to cool it before recirculating it. These are all vulnerable. These could be damaged or destroyed. And in the worst case, if a power plant lost the ability to cool itself, even after being switched off, if you can't cool the fuel, it will melt and you risk a release of radiation into the environment as happened at Fukushima. Now, there's very well-established quantitative methodologies for assessing these kinds of risks. It's called probabilistic risk assessment. And you can imagine these kind of tree diagrams in order for an, a meltdown to happen, for example, your external grid connection has to fail. Your two or three diesel generators, however many you have, have to fail. You have to not be able to repair those by the time fuel melting starts or by the time, you know, any batteries run out. So you, you multiply these probabilities. And, you know, if you have to have three or four things that have to happen before a meltdown, each one of which is very unlikely to happen by itself, you reason that overall the probability of an, of, of an accident or a meltdown is, is extremely low. The problem is that nuclear power plants aren't designed to be in wars. There's like literally a list of threats of dangers that nuclear power plants have to withstand, and state-based attack is not one of them. And as a result, in a war situation, these probabilities become strongly correlated. They are no longer remotely independent with one another. You know, if you imagine a firefight at a nuclear power plant that sparks a big fire, and we saw a fire at Zaporizhia the other day. Now, that was in a training building. That was not in the kind of reactor part of the site. But if you imagine a big fire at a power plant, you can imagine that fire knocking out the grid connection. If firefighters can't get to the plant because they're being shot at, which we also saw at Zaporizhia, you can imagine that fire burning unchecked. You can imagine it threatening diesel generators or diesel supplies. You could imagine it threatening the kind of so-called ultimate heat sink, these spray ponds. So the reason that I think this is a very dangerous situation is I don't believe Russia wants to cause a nuclear accident. I believe Russia wants to take over Ukrainian critical infrastructure and is behaving recklessly and dangerously in doing so. And I think the risk of a power plant accident rises significantly because all of these probabilities that are normally independent or only weakly correlated become strongly correlated in a wartime situation. I think nuclear conflict hasn't been that present of a possibility in people's lives during the past three decades. And so when we're thinking about how to make sense of it, we usually look back at the Cold War. Were there any conflicts during the Cold War that resembled this? Is this even closer to a direct conflict between two nuclear superpowers than we experienced for much of the Cold War? I think it's a mistake to look back at any single crisis or conflict and try to say the Russo-Ukrainian war is like that one in all its different aspects. On the other hand, I think there are lots of historical lessons that are relevant here. 
One of them is, in some sense, this resembles, and again, there's many, many differences, but this trilateral character makes me think back to the Vietnam War. The US and Vietnam were engaged in a war. Russia was supporting Vietnam, but didn't send Russian forces to fight. There were accidents in that war. I mean, I think of when the US accidentally bombed a Russian tanker and a Russian civilian ship in Haiphong Harbor. And on that occasion, both the sides behaved with restraint to avoid escalation. That I think is a useful thing to be taking into this circumstance. You know, I think imposing a no-fly zone would be a very bad move, not just because it would lead to a conventional war between the US and Russia, it would be a conventional war between the US and Russia. The Cuban Missile Crisis gives us lessons about the importance of face-saving and giving your opponent something to be able to, if you want your opponent to walk away from a conflict on terms that are favorable to you, you have to give your opponent something for face-saving. You know, in that case, in the Cuban Missile Crisis, it was the private commitment to Khrushchev that the US would withdraw the Jupiter missiles from Turkey. So again, like you can't go back to any one conflict as a single role model or example for how to conduct this one. I think there is a, a body of lessons that can be learned in terms of managing crises between nuclear armed states. You've mentioned the complexity of a trilateral conflict. There's another component that adds more complexity, which is domestic political pressure. We've already seen that some people domestically have called for a no-fly zone over Ukrainian airspace. And you can see from the polling that somewhere in the range of 70 to 80% of Americans with little knowledge of what that means have supported it. You also will see that Republican senators, including Joni Ernst from Iowa, has said we should absolutely send Polish warplanes into Ukraine. So there's some internal conflict about how far to go. You know, Biden didn't initially seem like he wanted to ban Russian oil, but ultimately was pushed by both parties to do so. How does that dynamic usually work, where there's probably always going to be a part of domestic politics that wants to go even further, to escalate even more? But how do leaders weigh that in the context of a nuclear threat? So certainly in the case of democracies, I think democratic leaders are intensely aware of public opinion because they want to be popular, they want to be re-elected. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that domestic politics is a major driver within democracies. And I think in a kind of different way, it is within autocracies too. Biden's situation, and Biden, I think, has some room to maneuver here, because there are certainly prominent Republican voices urging restraint in this situation. Marco Rubio, for example, I believe has said that a no-fly zone would be a really bad idea. So it certainly gives the president more leverage to show restraint in this situation. One thing that really worries me is the domestic politics of sanctions relief. I strongly believe that if Zelensky successfully negotiates an agreement to end this war that is acceptable for Zelensky, it should be acceptable for us. And to make that agreement work, we will have to offer Russia sanctions relief. And the domestic politics of that is going to be horrible. And there will be huge amounts of criticism of the Biden administration. And, you know, we've heard mixed messages from the West as a whole in terms of sanctions relief. You know, if you listen to the French finance minister, Le Maire, if you listen to the British foreign secretary, Liz Truss, they've declared economic war on Russia, like literally in those terms, based on the French finance minister, which you know, doesn't indicate a willingness to lift sanctions. Whereas, you know, the US 
quietly you know, has indicated at least some willingness to negotiate over this issue. But, you know, the domestic politics of sanctions relief is going to be horrible, and that's going to make it more complicated to end the war. It would be easier if Zelensky asks the U.S. to provide sanctions relief publicly to support a deal that he's reached. But that's actually my key concern about the way that domestic politics will interact with efforts to end the war. Looking ahead, this isn't the only conflict in the world that has a nuclear component. Obviously, perhaps the next most pressing one is China and Taiwan, but there's long been the conflict between India and Pakistan that has worried experts about the nuclear component. Does this experience so far teach us any lessons about how those conflicts could potentially play out? Does this precedent suggest that if you're a nuclear power, you can invade other countries because the rest of the world will be afraid of escalating in a way that could go nuclear? Has that always been the case? I'm very reluctant to try to draw lessons from this crisis for others at this stage, because we're in the middle of this crisis. We may be near the beginning of this crisis, and we have no idea as yet how Putin's threats will play out, Putin's nuclear threats specifically. I think this is a very kind of, the lessons I think would depend very much on how this crisis conflict evolves. If Putin's nuclear threats are seen as ineffective, that will have very different lessons than if they're seen as effective. So I, I really can't draw lessons mm -hmm. from this for other conflicts at the moment. What I would say, I think, is that in all of the other situations you've named, and I wouldn't add the Korean Peninsula to that list. Of course. You know, it is not that hard to imagine how a conventional conflict on the Korean Peninsula could turn nuclear. And less likely, but, you know, China and India have a border dispute. They don't have great relations. I, I, this, is, this is not in my top tier list of things to worry about. But if things evolve in a bad direction, the Sino-Indian relationship has a nuclear element to it. The leaders in all of those countries are, I think, intensely aware that they are dealing with nuclear-armed adversaries. And that, in some ways, I think, mitigates their behavior. Though... My general view about this is the closer we get to the nuclear threshold, the more it affects the behavior of leaders. You know, when you're far away from the threshold, nuclear war seems very unlikely. You know, in the Cold War today with, you know, China's moves to, that we saw last year, I think it was, intrude upon Indian territory and their disputed border. Leaders can behave in pretty aggressive ways when they're a long way from the nuclear threshold, but I think being closer to the threshold concentrates the mind. Understanding that, that how close we actually are to the threat of nuclear war shapes how countries behave. Do you think we should think of this conflict as the start of a new Cold War? I think this conflict is evidence that international relations are moving to a much more hostile, dangerous phase. And that certainly has some commonalities of the Cold War. I'm a bit reluctant to talk about a new Cold War, though, because I think that the current drivers of tensions are quite different from those that existed in the Cold War. The US and Russia don't have, we certainly have ideological differences, but it's nowhere remotely on the scale of communism versus capitalism. They are disputes that are much more associated with, I would argue, an expansionist desire on the part of Russia. I think it harkens back to a pre-First World War model of international relations. You know, when you look back to before the First World War, 
You see series of crises. You see constant attempts to redraw borders in Europe in a way we largely didn't see during the Cold War. Once things reach a really bad moment in 1962 with the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Soviets pretty much give up on trying. They accept the status over Berlin. The Soviets before then really were trying to redraw the map of Europe and secure control over all of Berlin. And that was a game they gave up on after the Cuban Missile Crisis because it just got too dangerous for them. And obviously there was both Soviet and honestly US adventurism elsewhere in the world, but actually not so much in the key theatre of Europe during the Cold War. And that contrasts with before the First World War, when you saw fairly regular attempts to redraw borders. So again, I think it's always a mistake to shoehorn any period of international relations into another and say, you know, we're moving back to the Cold War or we're moving back to the pre-First World War. There's, you know, there's elements of similarities and differences between all of them. But talking about moving back to an era before the First World War, when you consider how that era ended, is not exactly a reassuring analogy to be making. Yeah, of course. Well, while that may not be such a bright note, I think that's where we're going to leave things today. So thank you, James, so much for joining us. Great pleasure to do it. Thanks for having me on the show. James Acton is the co-director of the Nuclear Policy Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. My name is Galen Druk. Claire Bidigary-Curtis is on audio editing. Nash Consing is on video editing. Chad Matlin is our editorial director. And Emily Vineski is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review at the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.